0: Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. This is the conversation that we'd love to have about people who are making a difference in the world, uh, particularly around food uh, and passion and issues related to hunger, food insecurity and poverty. I've got two guests with me today. One is my colleague at Share Strength for the past two years, Lillian Singh who is leading our efforts to get to some of the root causes of why uh, children and families struggle with hunger in the first place by focusing on, uh, in Lillian's case, focusing on family economic mobility. Uh, And somebody that I met because of Lillian, Darren Babcock, who's the CEO of Bonton Farms. Uh, Welcome both of you. Excited to be here. Thank you, Billy. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation, Darren, because I got to visit Fonton Farms, thanks to Lillian. Uh, You were on a Zoom screen at the time, so we just got a little look at each other from a distance, uh, and we haven't haven't been able to spend time in person, but I got to spend some great time uh, touring that day and had an unbelievable lunch at your kind of picnic table at the restaurant there, which was just uh, one of the best lunches I've had in a long time. So just fantastic. So I kind of feel like we we know each other a little bit. But just to start at the beginning, uh, I'm going to ask Lillian, uh, since I met you, Darren, through Lillian, to tell us how she learned about you and Bonton Farms and why we're having this conversation. Lillian,
1: awesome. Thank you so much, Billy. So we uh, came across, you know, the incredible um, Darren and Bonton Farms. Um, through analysis of really going out to better understand what is working in place, um, our goal and our ambition to share our strength is to lock arms with organizations across the country that are um, really holistically addressing um, not just the symptoms of, of why families find themselves in poverty and hunger, but um, the actual root causes. So um, in our search, in our uh, scaffolding, uh, we came across Bontown Farms and uh, the, the the rest is really history, uh, Billy. We uh, immediately got super excited about um, the work that this organization has been doing um, for years on years on years. And specifically, uh, I was most attracted to the analysis that um, you can't just address um, uh, the the today challenges as to why a person is hungry, but you have to actually engage in the ecosystem and wish families live, work, and play so that we can actually have differential outcomes. So um, that's where we started um, as an organization, really trying to learn. And Bonton Farms was one of the first organizations that um, we learned from.
0: And Lillian, you uh, you went and visited, I think, before you took me down there. Is that right? You went and had a visit and got to know folks there?
1: I wish. I wish. But Darren and I had about four or five calls <laughs> prior to prior to our visit. Um, I'm well versed with the Dallas ecosystem because I've done work with organizations on the ground there before um, and was also very much aware of just the uh, segregation of South Dallas, as they call it, um, just uh, from a spatial um, perspective from the other parts of the city. So I was well aware of where Bonton Farms was, but that was actually my first Okay. First
0: All right. So I'm, I'm almost even with you.
1: <laughs> I guess you are. <laughs>
0: Darren, um, I know you've told your story many, many times and I've heard it and I've read it and it's compelling every single time. Um, but, but I also feel like it is so inextricably tied to Bonton Farms. Um, just because it's so compelling, not because you designed it that way, uh, but because it's so compelling that I, I I would love for our listeners to hear a little bit about your decision to leave a corporate career behind you, to enter this sector, to move from your home into the Bonten neighborhood. Um, and just kind of tell us how that all came about.
2: Well, um, you know, anytime I tell this story, um, there's a lot that I have to admit about myself. So it's always challenging. But I do so willingly and hope that uh, more people wake up and become aware of the community and people around them, the experiences that they have um, that helps form and shape the society that we desire to live in going forward. You know, for me, I think obviously it started in the beginning, but kind of the catalyst for real transformation is I had experienced a lot of uh, challenges and loss in my own life. I was raised kind of in a traditional family Um where men weren't supposed to show emotion. We were just kind of supposed to keep uh, moving forward. And so I did my best to do that. And in uh, March of 2000, uh, well, March of 1998, my first wife was diagnosed with cancer. And then two years to the date after that, she passed away. And that combined with everything else that I had experienced in my life tipped me over. Um, I had I had held as much internally as I had the strength and ability to endure and it spilled out. And I just became a very angry, um, violent and disconnected person that ultimately led me into trouble. Um, I ran into some folks and started uh, using drugs and alcohol to self-medicate through that time and wound up um, on the verge of, of death one way or another. And yet, even though I had given up on things, I had family and friends that cared about me, that still believed in me, and that would not let me go. And I'm here today as a result of that. And I I just think that, at least for me, when you when you go through something like that, there's this reevaluation of life that happens when you come out the other side. And the truth be told is I had... I had spent my entire life building my own brand, my own kingdom, my own image. Um, And what I learned through that difficult time is really what was important were relationships. It was community. It was people. And so coming out the other side of that, all of the things that i thought that i held value getting the best paying job and buying the m- most beautiful house and the most comfortable cars and life for myself and vacations in the most place all of that stuff wasn't additive to my life it wasn't uh it was all stuff that could be taken away tomorrow um and when people you care about are hurting or pass away, all of that stuff doesn't seem to matter so much. But the things that mattered even through those difficult times were people, relationships and community. So I spent a uh, time trying to figure out what that looked like for me on the other side. And it was 10 years of, I think, maturation that occurred before a friend of mine introduced me to the Bonton community. And the first time that I had the privilege of coming down and interacting with this community and the people that call it home, I knew that what I had been searching for was here. I didn't know it would what it would require. I didn't know it would require me to leave my career and home and move there. I just knew that I had found a new home with a people that were very similar to me, but in, in a lot of regards, but in one regard were different. When I found myself with my back up against the wall, I had resources and people around me that carried me through. And in Bonton, I found people that were struggling and had their backs up against the wall and didn't have resources or people. And so I think more than anything, I hate to say it, but it was selfish. It was an opportunity, opportunity for me to give back what was so freely given to me in the most, uh, in the darkest days of my life
0: and do you, and Darren do you think um these kind of circumstances what you went through uh like inexorably led you to Bonton or uh was some of it the serendipity of your friends took you there you might have ended up somewhere else also doing great work but but uh, you know say a little bit more about what was so compelling about the folks you met at Bontan? Um,
2: well, I think part of it was the combination of if somebody had invited me to Bontan before I had gone through what I'd been through, I don't think I would have recognized or appreciated um, it the way that I did. It was, the, I think, that that the commonality that we have as human beings all struggling to get by and that we need each other. And unfortunately, I grew up so privileged and blessed with resources and things that I took it for granted. It wasn't until I had lost it all that I recognized the importance of it. So I believe that was the catalyst for me to see it clearly and to appreciate Bonton. And what I met when I got to Bonton were, uh, and again, this is where I have to admit some things. You know, I was told that Bonton was this inner city community that was rife with crime and broken people and broken dreams and it was this dangerous, dark place. And some of that's true in the regard of uh, people that find their backs up against the wall that are hopeless, do desperate things. But the thing I think I missed is that the people were beautiful. It was the place. It was the the fact that we as a society had designed entire neighborhoods like Bonton, To have none of the resources that human beings need to flourish and then when somehow they can't make the same thing of their lives that we did we build prisons to incarcerate them and shelters to house them and um programs to take care of them as if they're not capable of taking care of themselves and this is where i had such great conflict of of coming in so such proximity with people and walking, not in their shoes, but alongside them on their life journey, that you recognize that everybody in my community is capable of exceedingly more than I am. They just grew up, happened to be born into a place that had very little to offer them. And their their human potential got squashed in the process.
0: And Darren, you said something that uh, to me felt, uh, you, you said it uh, kind of matter-of-factly, but it felt, it felt so uh, charged to me. You said... Uh, we designed the, 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 the conditions and the, the neighborhood to be this way.
2: Absolutely. It's uh, absolutely by design. During, after slavery, uh, during the period of emancipation and segregation, I've wondered, one of the things that I've not been able to do is walk alongside somebody that experienced that time, but I wonder what it would have been like to be told that you're free but that you can't go live where anybody else is or when where their running water is or where their electricity is, where there's goods and services. You can't use those goods and services. So I'm not a slave anymore, but I'm certainly far from being free. And so where did that, where did the people congregate? Well, they had to build communities of their own in Dallas, Texas, where we're talking about today, many of our freedmen's communities, which is what they call the neighborhoods or communities that were first established uh, by those during emancipation, would build their community on the banks of the river. Um, And it's not because of resources and water and transportation the river might provide, it was more because it was a floodplain and nobody else would build there. And so from the genesis of the idea that they had to form communities on their own with no resources or utilities, um, to the fact that we then built highways and railroads to further dissect those. We created an educational system based on property taxes so that neighborhoods with less tax revenue had less opportunity for the best uh, the best equipment and, and teachers and facilities. Um, we couldn't participate in your healthcare or hospital system um, because those places tend to be poor. Grocery stores would likely not to be developed. And so all of the things that we take, I think, take for granted that we that we call part of the community, the smaller community that we access for the goods and services resources that we all use to build our lives around. In 2023, most communities like Bonton still do not have those basic services. And and the bad news is, is, yes, we design that and we have to own up to it. But the good news is, if that it is by design, we can redesign our future and it doesn't have to stay that way.
0: That's a, that's a really great way to put it. I'd like both of you to talk a little bit about, before we get into how Bonton Farm works, uh, I'd like you both to say a little bit about the conditions in the the, the Bonton neighborhood of Dallas. I know that uh, when I was there, we learned that you know something like only half the kids are going to high school, that half the young men end up incarcerated before they're 25, or at least that's the way it was. Uh, at one point uh, and that it's geographically so separated from the rest of Dallas. So, uh, you know, I'm going to ask you, Darren, to give us some of the kind of the, the, the color and character of the neighborhood so we can, you know, paint a picture of it. Uh, and Lillian, maybe you can say a little bit about how that aligns with uh, places around the country and where we're looking at Share Our Strength, where we're looking to try to make a difference.
2: Uh, I'll start and just say, you know, I wanna I wanna preface this statement by um, the outcomes that I'm going to articulate here are a result of that system and not the character and quality of the people, um, and and I only say that because uh, before I got introduced to Bonton, I would have judged those outcomes and attributed them to the people and not the system that created it. And so it's my experience after living there 12 years, and now calling the people uh, that live in Bonton, family and friends, and my neighbors, that that I just think it's really important to it's really important to call that out uh, before we talk about the fact that there's 3,800 zip codes in the state of Texas, and uh, and we in Bonton incarcerate the highest percentage of people of any zip code in the state. Uh, We graduate about we haven't graduated more than 54 percent of our kids from high school in over 40 years. And the only reason we know that's because that's when they started uh, tracking that data. Uh, We have the second highest teen birth rate. We have the highest infant mortality rate in the county that we're in Uh, from health out. as far as health outcomes, which will directly tie back when we start talking about food and food security and wellness and hunger, um, we suffer from more than double the rate of cancer, stroke, heart disease, diabetes, and childhood obesity than the county we're in, and men in our zip code will live 11.7 years less than the average lifespan of a man in the county that we're in. And I could keep going, but those are some of the some of the more consistent uh, outcomes uh, from the neighborhood of Bonton.
0: That's uh, that's pretty sobering. Uh statistical data. Uh, Lillian, how does it square with, um, you know, what we're hoping to be able to demonstrate in different parts of the country?
1: Before I answer that, um, Darren, thank you so much just for naming that, you know, the conditions in which people find themselves in right now is not because of their individual deficiencies or their individual uh, lack, uh, but there is something in the groundwater of this country that has institutionalized the inequities and that has produced those inequitable um, social as well as health, health outcomes that you described. And our goal, Billy, is to um, really address that issue at the intersection, which I'm excited to talk about here in a moment, of how do we actually work with organizations that are um, serving and providing services on the front lines, um, focused on really improving um, income outcomes, right? Because income is the is the number one driver of any level of financial stability and security in this country, um, which will then lead to, I believe, improved health outcomes. And we know that food is one of the greatest assets um, to um, healthy lifestyles and longevity and um, life expectancy. So that is our objective. Our objective is to partner with organizations who have identified and um, created and crafted what we're calling scalable insights. So how do we elevate what's working in place by those who are most proximal to the pain and therefore closest to the solution to the national stage so that we can support designing uh, better and improved uh, program interventions as well as partnering to develop both administrative as well as legislative policy solutions so that we can uh, begin to really see a turn in tide uh, for those who are furthest from what I call economic and social equity in this country. So that's what we're aiming to do. Um, and that's why we're partnering with Bonton Farms.
0: Uh, and and uh, I love that, yeah, as you know, Lillian, uh, i love that aspiration and that ambition and i i like to think i've been part of it uh, at share strength but it's such a tall order <laughs> does it intimidate you in any way
1: it actually energizes me um i i've been working um, in place with organizations for the last 15 years one of the opportunities that share our strength have is to share our strength our convening power our communication power our political power to um, elevate and set on the regional and national stage what really is actually um, working in place. But more importantly, um, as Darren talked about, how do we help create a national narrative about um, the conditions that are currently existing in communities at no fault of those who actually reside there. Um, I'm excited because I believe that we've partnered um, with, as we enter you know, our first year of launching our family economic mobility work, some um, innovative, uh, creative, but also daring um, partnerships. Um, so we're going to be testing and learning And with the ambition to help scale, right, what is working in local community. So these are the things that keep me up at night, systems change work, uh, partnering with organizations, elevating their voice, uh, letting them be seen as the experts in which they truly are. Uh, But it also energizes me. So it's a tall order. We have a lot ahead of us, but I'm happy that share strength is in the movement, but more importantly, supporting those who are on the front lines who are ready to actually uh, move this initiatives, the initiatives they're focused on even further.
0: Well, Lillian, speaking of things that keep me up at night and keep you up at night, uh, uh, before we get to how Bonton Farm works, I want to ask both of you just like one more thing about this because I feel like, Darren, I feel like Lily and I, you know, we're we're headquartered in Washington D.C. We're in a little bit of a bubble. Um, you're a little bit more in in the real world. Uh, but one of the things that strikes me is, you know, I I feel like if any twenty, if I could have a conversation with any one of twenty neighbors of mine, and say, do you realize that um, some of these conditions exist because that's the way these things were designed? Or in Lillian's words, you know, this is the groundwater that's shaping this. I think they would be stunned, uh, and shocked. And I say it because I feel like we have so much work to do to help people understand the systemic nature of this. And it feels like we're so far from, uh, a kind of a common or a shared understanding of that. Um, d- does that feel that way to you, Darren? Uh, do you feel like you're pushing a rock up the hill and trying to get people to understand this, um, or are we getting closer than I think?
2: I think it's both. Um, And I'm not dodging your question. I think that we just have the wrong narrative. So that can feel overwhelming, except that we also can say that we can change that narrative. And as long as we have the prevailing narrative that people are the problem, and we keep casting blame and pointing fingers at one another, and it goes both ways, um, then we're going to remain stuck. But if we could come to terms that we're all human beings and that we're all born with the same, generally the same uh, human beings, you know, need generally the same things to thrive and flourish. And when those things are present, most people will. And when they're not, most people won't. If that narrative could could begin to change, then I think more people would start to see the problems for what they are, as opposed to through the lens of a, of a, of a, improper paradigm. And I, I'll just tell you that I think the reason that I can confirm that the paradigm that people are the prevailing is the prevailing narrative is the problem. Because if, it, it, if that was the prevailing narrative, our response to the social challenges would be to build the world's largest prison industrial complex, which we've done. It, it would be that a disproportionate amount of philanthropy would probably go towards Band-Aid solutions that took care of people instead of empowering people to care for themselves, like homeless shelters and the such. And I'm not putting any of that stuff down. It's just that if we believed in the capabilities and power of people, we would need a lot less of that because we would see that they had the tools and resources to build their lives.
0: Lillian, anything you would say differently about that?
1: I just co signed everything Darren said, uh, but I do want to name um, Billy. I appreciate your question. Being in a bubble in DC, uh, particularly depending on what part of DC that you're in, a lot of folks in positions of power, authority, resources are not proximal, um, but they get to make decisions on behalf and for those who are actually in place. Um, so, one of the things that I uh, intend to do through our work. Here at Share a Strength is to create as many avenues as possible to get uh, people who want to do good and want to actually see differential outcomes in place, being able to be on the ground um, in communities proximate to the leaders who are um, actually leading this work.
0: Well, that, that's why this conversation is so important, and I'm so grateful to both of you for engaging in it, because this is really seminal work for us. This is a evolution into a new and very important direction that Lillian has been leading our organization and our stakeholders internal and external, uh, towards. And so to understand it, uh, in such a, uh, in such a vivid, specific way, is going to be really valuable. So let, let's get to that. Let's talk about uh, Bonton Farms: what it does, how it's evolved, where it came from, uh, what its future looks like. Jump, just jump in there at any point you you like, Darren. Well,
2: I think the thing that makes the thing the thing that makes Bonton Farm so special it was built on a really strong foundation, and that is that we weren't an organization; we had no ambition or desire to create an organization. Um, as a white man moving into a predominantly African-American and minority, um, community, um, I didn't understand the scope of things that we're talking about today. So I couldn't come in with an attitude of I'm here to fix anything because I didn't know, I didn't know what there was to fix. And all of those things led to this really, um, authentic, um, in this authentic beginning where everything was just about being present for each other you know i needed to be present to this community for my own well-being for my own recovery but my neighbors needed me to be present for their own well-being and their own recovery it was this idea of mutual benef- mutual benefit and the integrity of how that started that we were just doing life together and learning from each other gave me space to learn how my neighbors had a different and different and different life experience for me. And I started to see the problems for what they were. They're a systemic problem built on um, on a faulty idea that some people are less than and don't deserve the same as everybody else. And then it's built also on the faulty idea that there's this American dream that everybody can access. Um, And if you don't, then then there's something wrong with you. And and so Bonton Farms being built on the foundation of relationship led to the understanding that if we're going to overcome these things together, we're going to have to collaborate together, form an organization and start to attack the systemic barriers that remain problematic in our way today. And so I think if we have come down any other, other way, if there would have been uh, some idea that if I had had knowledge of what a food desert was before I went down and started attacking that problem to find a solution, I don't think that you would visit Bonton Farms today and feel it's as, as special of a place. Instead, it's just built on relationships and the belief in one another and that we, we're better when we see the person next to us shine. And so how do we advance that more and more and how we live out our lives every day?
0: So describe a little bit about what go what, what actually goes on there. What what do you see when you get to Bonton Farms and what what is being produced?
2: Well, we think that there's we think that there's four key things that need to be addressed. And one is that we've left a lot of people behind and those people are worthy and they should be we should reach back and bring them up with us. And so a huge part of our work is just meeting people where they are, and it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done, that's not, that doesn't define you. And so we have a huge part of our work that's just about serving people, meeting them where they are, getting to know them, and then helping them live into what their dreams and aspirations, their personal dreams and aspirations are. The second aspect of our work is really working on disrupting those systems of inequity and innovating entrepreneurial free market solutions that remove those barriers and enable and encourage human flourishing. The, the third thing is, is I think that uh, a symptom of the broken systems that we've established have fractured social networks and systems, the social fabrics of our community. Um, and maybe I'll give you an example. If you talk to the old timers in Bonton, they will tell you that while our neighborhood has always been materially poor, it has traditionally been rich in neighbor in community the things that really mattered we had you'll hear stories about people coming on to hardship and other families taking in families children as their own to care for them uh, one of my friends that i know you guys met daris uh he spent his entire childhood he and his siblings they had one car for 3 blocks and because we didn't have a grocery store their job on every weekend was to go to every neighbor on those three blocks, get their grocery list and their money. And the rest of the weekend was spent shuttling groceries to see that everybody in three blocks had groceries. That's a neighborhood that's rich in community. And all of a sudden, uh, as we desegregated and built public housing that congregated poor people together in density, That richness in community was lost, and we started fighting people over crumbs. We adopted this attitude of scarcity, and it gave birth to gangs. And in fact, in our neighborhood, now you can lose your life by walking down the street with the wrong color on. But that is a man-made construct that's part of this system. And so a huge part of our work, the third major bucket of our work, is focused on restoring the social fabric and bringing families together and churches together and rec centers together and teachers together and the police together and all of these different components that we have been at odds with and start working and fostering communication where we we reconnect those in healthy ways, where we collaborate and work with each other. And then the last thing is just taking care of our environment. If we walk out of your door and you don't feel good about the place you live, then I'm likely not to feel good about myself. And so we work together to do things like honoring people for the yard of the month and who who has the best Christmas or holiday decorations. And what can we do to encourage people to make our our community a place of beauty where we feel better about the place we are? Because when we feel better about the place we are, we feel better about ourselves and our place in that uh, community. And so that's the four major buckets of work that you would see um, when you come down and experience Bonton Farms.
0: And, and, and Darren, some of this uh, transpires through the mechanism of what's often been described as one of the largest urban farms in the country. You're actually growing produce.
2: Absolutely. You know, one of the, we think there's seven human essentials that we call them human essentials. There's seven things that systemically are foundational to human flourishing that we don't have uh one of those one of them's economy and so the farms help to to build economy but the second part of it is access to safe affordable food and absent our ability to influence a grocery store to come build a store in our neighborhood we did what we could do that was within our power and that was to plant our own gardens when i started when all the the first group of men that welcomed me into the community just happened to be all men that were desperate because they were coming home from prison and trying not to go back And our friendships formed and they told me their primary barrier was, was economic. They were, they were um, unable to find work based on their background. And so I started working with them to build resumes where they understood their own value. And in doing so recognized that most of them were too sick to work. Um, They were chronically ill. i would never been around chronically ill people like that. And so I started asking questions and learned that Bonton was a food desert. And, I couldn't understand that. But long story short, we wound up planting a garden and it wasn't long after that, that we got written a ticket for selling vegetables in <laughs> Dallas. It was illegal against an ordinance to have a what they called a market garden where you grew food and sold it. And so um, uh, how the farm got started was it was just an act of defiance to try to remove that barrier. Uh, The newspaper agreed to write a story about it every month for a year to try to take the power away from the city to shut us down. Uh, City wound up giving us an entire city block of land to start an experimental illegal farm on. And that's how we became one of the largest urban farms in the United States.
0: And the farm uh, also supplies the restaurant that I had lunch at. Is that right?
2: That's correct. Yes, we grow our own food and produce it for our community, our family and the restaurant.
0: So the question we're always asking, and Lillian will testify that I probably ask this every day, is, you know, what does success look like? Um, and, and for you and uh, Darren, and, and for you, Lillian, as well, given your deep involvement in this, uh, are you measuring it in um, the number of uh, jobs created, the number of uh, families that are able to uh, stay together and and uh, have a home that they think is safe, and the reduction of uh, violence or the improvement in education? What what does success look like for something as comprehensive, uh, as three-dimensional, as robust as Bonton Farms?
1: Sure. And then we can talk about the project that we're piloting together because I think that that actually addresses um, exact. you know. We don't know what success is yet, Billy, but we are aiming for the stars with what we're creating together.
2: You know, uh, Billy, I think that we, you know, this is going to be where I'm self-critical of of us that work in this space and just say that I think we settle for impacts and outcomes when we all long for transformation. And, you know, I just don't think that we fight hard enough to change the level, the, the, the playing field, you know. Six or seven years ago, I got invited to give a TED Talk and tell the story of Bonton and our community. And I told them no for almost a year because it's not my story to tell. And they kept calling and my community kept saying, hey, tell our story. Like like nobody else, nobody's ever asked about us before. So tell our story. And one day it'll be us that tells it. So I, I've never prepared so much for a public speaking event as I did that because I felt the history and the people that I love. And, and I, w- I just wanted to represent them well. It's one of the most discouraging things because I never slowed down to think about what the purpose of a TED Talk was. I just wanted to make my community proud. You know, the idea of a TED Talk is to share ideas that have the power to change the world. And here I am talking about in 2023 in the richest country in the history of the world, in one of the richest cities in the richest country in the history of the world, we have 40 communities in Dallas County alone, that are classified by the USDA as a food desert. And as a city, we import 40% more food than we consume. To make sure that we have fresh fruit and vegetables that are all pretty and perfect, we import 40% more food than we consume. We wait, we have a 40% waste factor. And yet we can't figure out a solution to see that those 40 communities have access to safe, affordable food. The, the, the reason it was so discouraging is because the the gentleman that spoke before me was talking about autonomous vehicles and the fact that the cars that in the future will drive themselves and make a billion calculations a second at 70 miles an hour to be statistically safer than with a human being behind the wheel. And the lady that spoke after me was a geneticist from the Mayo Clinic talking about the fact that they can take stem cells with your own DNA and make a brand new heart, liver and kidney and lung. So the whole organ donor and transplantation and rejection medicine that so affects my community, that's so dear to me uh, because I know so many people that are suffering and dying absent that, kid- that the, the, those organ transplants is a thing of the past because they can make a brand new heart, liver, and kidney and lung just as they did the day you were born. And yet we have these problems like how do we develop economy in impoverished places? How do we see that we have access to safe, affordable food in impoverished places? How do we create financial institutions that are non-predatory so people have access to build wealth and so they don't remain stuck in generational poverty? And I think it's a testament to your measurement question that we're – We're overly uh, we're too easily satisfied with incomes and outputs as opposed to transformation of being the real metric, because these problems have no existence in our society in 2023.
0: Yeah, well, you know, my my perspective on this, Darren, is that, you know, the the greatest um, kind of self-inflicted failures that we suffer from are what I think of as failures of imagination. So, you know, if we're not aiming for transformation, if we're if we're aiming at incomes and outputs and we work our, you know, we work our tails off and we hit them. Uh, but they're not transformational. Then we've aimed too low. We've had a failure of imagination, and we tend to, you know, once we lock and load on a on a goal or a target, that's that's where all of our attention goes. But uh, it, it's important that it be set in the right place. And if it's not transformational, it's uh, it's incremental improvement. That's better than nothing. But uh, I think it's not what we're aiming for. And um, I can tell that you're ready to. Uh, give another TED Talk just about your TED Talk experience. So that you, you, you might get two out of that. Uh, Lillian, uh, say a little bit about how you're thinking about what success looks like.
1: Um, using the word transformation, that's just what we are aiming to do. Partnering with Blanton Farms um, to address some of the things that Darren talked about. Um, why should a family take all day to get access to fresh, um, healthy food? Um, so our ambition is to design um, with Bonton Farm supporting their leadership, their expertise, rooted in a community uh, needs um, assessment survey. What does the community actually want? is a um, food delivery system using technology to Bonton Farms. That is the ambition. So think of Instacart for low-income families having access to fresh foods in their neighborhood, walking distance from their homes. Currently, right now, um, across the country, there's so many different food deserts, and we can solve this problem. So um, our ambition in supporting the incredible, brilliant leadership of the Bonton Farms team and staff as well as engaging those on the front lines and in community is to create this system so that folks can walk out of their homes, walk a block, not get on the bus and take two hours to and from just to get a fresh apple. So that's our ambition, that's our goal. And we're looking forward to continue to build the prototype because we believe that in partnership by those who are experts, we can scale this to two, three, four, five, ten 10 communities across the country. And that's just in pilot stage.
0: Well, uh, you're talking about exactly what I love to talk about now, Lillian. And I know we've uh, we've basically disregarded the, the the clock because this conversation has been so important. And we should wrap up in a few minutes. But when you talk about scaling, when you talk about replicating, when you talk about getting Bonton Farms or the the secret sauce of Bonton Farms into other neighborhoods, what are uh, some of the the challenges or obstacles or gating factors to do that? Is that, is it a matter of, I know money is always a part of it. Is it, is it uh, just money? Is it also, is it talent? Is it time? Is it uh, uh, understanding uh, better? Is it, or is it too early uh, to know what that, that secret sauce is? Uh, How would you think about that, Darren?
2: I actually think that it's easier than we think as long as we, uh, we kind of follow the idea of of experimental discovery. Uh, what, what we don't want to do is to go so fast and not learn that we have a fatal flaw where we can mess something up and we lose the trust of the community and people we serve, or the people that invest in us that believe that we 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 are capable of executing our plan with excellence. And so what I love about the partnership that we've formed is we're taking a small approach to create. Uh, pilots where we have uh equity strong equity in the community and with investors and we're gonna we're gonna put a transformational solution uh in the marketplace and we're gonna be we're gonna observe and we're gonna adapt and refine before we try to scale too fast i think one of the things that that i've seen happen is that we either we either try to force a solution into a market that doesn't fit and it requires an exponential um Uh, reinvestment over time. And eventually, sometimes that investment may drop. And so it falls apart. And so it really wasn't a solution. Um, It was a band aid. And I think the second thing is that we may have really good ideas that we try to scale too fast. And in doing so, um, don't recognize that no idea is going to be perfect coming out of the gate. And that um, sometimes we lose the trust of the people we serve by trying to advance things before they're fully refined and ready for the market.
0: Well, and I was going to ask you to just comment on this trust issue, both of you, a little bit, because uh, it, it, there's when you earn trust, uh, it's never permanent, right? You've got to you've got to keep earning it. You've got to be faithful to it uh, and have a fidelity to it so that it doesn't get diminished. But how how hard is that is is earning and keeping trust of a community?
2: Well, I mean, it, the hard part is that your point is accurate. It's a, it's something you have to do every day that you wake up and every day builds on it. But if you have one bad day, you can lose everything. Um, the, the good news is, is that it's not hard to do because you just have to be honest, even when it's hard to be and you have to be consistent. We always just say this if you show up and you do what you say you're going to do, when you say you're going to do it and you do it with excellence, then that's the best formula for building trust.
0: Lillian, what would you say?
1: Building trust in my career, I've learned that uh, one should, who are, you know, there, there's power in every relationship. And uh, one's title status doesn't supersede uh, local community expertise. So whenever I enter a community, I, uh, one, would love to be invited. <laughs> um, and two, be in a posture of learning. You're a student in that new environment. Um, you have wisdom there, you have experts there, you have knowledge there. Uh, so to enter with the heart of um, a, a student heart of learning um, is the best way that I've found that you actually uh, create trust.
0: Not exactly typical of the way people think of Washington, D.C., but hopefully organizations like ours, organizations like Bonton Farms uh, can be closer to the communities that they aspire to, to support. Uh, they can learn from them. Uh, the learning can go both ways. They can be innovative. They can take risks um, and hopefully demonstrate the kind of progress that we've been talking about. Um, I'm assuming the best way, Darren, to learn more about Bonton Farms is your website, bontonfarms.org. There's also your TED Talk, uh, which if you um, Google Darren Babcock, you will find uh, the TEDx Talk, which is really, really a good one. Um, and Lillian at uh, nokidhungry.org and at uh You can learn more about our family economic mobility work as well. Thank you both so much. We've been talking with Darren Babcock uh, from Bonton Farms in Dallas, Texas, and Lillian Singh from the Share Strength uh, Headquarters in Washington, D.C., Lillian leading our family economic mobility work. Uh, this is the kind of uh, conversation uh, I'm going to just impose on both of you. This is the kind of conversation we can't have just once. There's too much to follow here. There's too much to check on check in on there's too much to learn about so i'm hoping that uh at, at some point in time we can we can reconvene and catch up with each other on on where things are this uh certainly whet my appetite as did my visit to ponton farms and um, just really really grateful to both of you for taking the time to share with us you've been listening to add passion and stir please visit us at add passion and stir and don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast Share Ad Passion and Stir with a friend and rate the show so that others can find it. Ad Passion and Stir is produced by Paul Woody Woodle's team at District Productive with support from our team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. That includes my sister Debbie Shore, Pamela Taylor, Megan Cantrell, and Kelly Griffin. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories of individuals sharing their strength to make a difference in the world. Until then, thanks so much for listening.